This episode is brought to you by Element, spelled L-M-N-T. What is Element? It's a delicious, sugar-free, electrolyte drink mix. I tried this recently after hearing about it on another podcast, and since then, I've stocked up on boxes and boxes of this and usually use it one to two times per day. Element is a great alternative to other commercial recovery and performance drinks. As a coach or an athlete, you will not find a better product that focuses on the essential electrolytes your body needs during competition. Element has become a staple in my own training and something we are excited to offer our coaches and student athletes as well. Element is used by military special forces teams, Team USA Weightlifting, at least five NFL teams, and more than half the NBA. You can try it risk-free. If you don't like it, Element will give you your money back, no questions asked. They have extremely low return rates. Element came up with a very special offer for you as a listener to this podcast. For a limited time, you can claim a free Element sample pack. You only cover the cost of shipping. For U.S. customers, this means that you can receive an eight-count sample pack for only $5. Simply go to drinkelement.com slash justinclimo. That's drinklmnt.com slash justinclimo to claim your free eight-count sample pack. Drinkelement.com slash justinclimo. The Context Podcast is proudly sponsored by Delta Wines and Brick and Mortar, our everyday go-to with sustainability built in. Delta Wines are vibrant yet balanced, made to be enjoyed on special occasions. Brick and Mortar was founded in 2011 and has worked to create the European Wine Drinkers California Wine. The wines are small lot, single vineyard sourced from Napa, Sonoma County, and Mendocino Ridge. In addition to tasting good, they also help you feel good with an eco-friendly packaging and environmental nonprofit donations with every purchase. Buy online at winesforchange.com. Also, use the code CONTACTS to support us and get a discount. The presentation is beautiful, the wines are great, and you'll be supporting Saving the Earth. What more do you need? Again, that's online at winesforchange.com discount code contacts at checkout Welcome back to Context. We are joined today by Matt Saman, head basketball coach at Grapevine Faith Christian School in Grapevine, Texas. Coach, thanks for calling in this morning. Man, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, let's dive in. So if you don't mind, you've got an interesting backstory that I would imagine most of the world is not aware of, but can you take us through your journey, how you ended up in coaching, what was the process of you landing your first coaching job and any subsequent jobs that you've had? How, how'd you get here today? Sure. I played high school basketball at the Colony, which is in this Dallas-Fort Worth area that I live in. And I was fortunate enough to go play at Baylor for four years. We may get into that later on, but that had a little bit of a different ending than I had imagined. But after that, I, I was able to play overseas one year in Iceland. But after Iceland was done, I didn't really have a plan for my life and what I wanted to do. I went through about nine jobs in a year and a half in different areas, different fields, but nothing stuck. And I had the opportunity to coach some eighth grade boys in, in the select ball world. And just getting back into the game and being able to work with them, I think really showed me the way where I needed to be and what I needed to do. And so I went and got my teaching certificate and I started at a place called Naaman Forest, a big public school as a varsity assistant. Did that for one year and then went to another a public school to be a varsity assistant at McKinney High School for five years. The spring of that fifth year, one of the high schools in that area, McKinney Boyd, opened up and my head coach at the time told me that I had a really good shot of getting it. And just something in my gut told me 
that I should not go for that job. And I told him the next day, I said, yeah, coach, I'm not going to put my hat in, you know, in the, in the ring for that. And, and my old high school coach called me and said, Matt, you're making a huge mistake because public school jobs at the five or six, a level that it's basically yours. If you want it, don't come around that often. And so I thought, oh man, what have I done? But a few weeks later, another coaching buddy of mine called and said, Hey, have you ever heard of Grapevine Faith Christian School? And I've always been a public school guy. And so I told him, no, I have not heard of that school. He said, go online and check it out. And when I read what the school is about and its pillars and, and what it stood for, kind of that same feeling hit me in the gut. This is the place. So I, and I called them up and I went and interviewed and I've had some things in my past happen, weren't positive and things that I did. And I was a little nervous going into a Christian school interview process, wondering how do I do this? What should I say? And I was sitting in the parking lot of our school here, listening to a podcast. And the guy said, literally before I walked in, he said, we need to stop giving edited testimonies, meaning we need to just tell the truth of who we are, what we've done, and we're talking to people. So I walked in and the four people sitting there, I sat down, I had my books, my booklets of my basketball stuff. And I said, hey, I don't really know what I'm supposed to say to you, but this is what I just heard. And so here's who I am and what I've done. And the cool thing is the story that I, I wrote a book eight years ago about my college experience. And that story had just come out and I didn't know this, but they had read the book before I came in. So if I had lied and maybe sugarcoated some things and tried to make myself look better than I am, they would have known. And so telling the truth in those moments was huge. And so I became the, the head coach here at Grapevine Faith. I've, I've been here eight years and I'm like Jim Beheim. I think. People talk to me about other jobs and things, and I just don't believe that the grass is greener. Yeah, for sure. No, awesome story. And I want to just touch on your book, if you don't mind, since I read it probably however many years ago when we met at the PGC camp. But if you could talk a little bit about the leftovers and what that is about and how that served you in figuring out your own story and your own journey and how it connects to this year's national championship. Yep. About in 2012, I read a book called The Walk-On, Life at the End of the Bench. It's by a guy named Alan Williams. And it was his account of being a walk-on at, I think, Wake Forest, either that or Georgia Tech, one of those two. And I'm reading this book and I thought, okay, this is my story. Like I can really relate to this guy and it's taking me inside of his experience. The only difference was I was a scholarship player, but I basically had to grind for four years to create a role and a reason for them to keep me. So I started to look at my story and my journey. And then all of a sudden I thought, I realized my story is even more unique because I'm part of the biggest scandal in college basketball history. And in 2012, Baylor had already rebounded in such a huge way that I thought this is interesting to look at. So I wrote the book for three reasons. First was I'm 6'2", 6'3", on a good day and not naturally gifted athletically. So how many kids out there are like me and have a dream of playing college basketball. And they probably listen to these six, eight guys tell their story like I did, and they can't relate to it at all. And so I, the first third of the book, or not third, but the first part of it is my journey from a small kid in a small town of Pennsylvania, making it to a high level D, division one. Then it's how does a kid like me that there's definitely better shooters. There's more athletic defenders. There's bigger guys. There's better ball handlers. How do I survive in this world where in four years I had 39 different teammates mm. walk in and out of the building and somehow I remained. Mm. Uh, so it's a, a look into what college basketball is really like. Not that I, I would imagine that Julius Randall's story of college basketball one year at Kentucky is different than my story, but there's probably a lot more guys like me. And, and then the final part is the underdog story of going into my senior year. One of my teammates shot and killed one of my other teammates and the coaching staff that I had played for three years 
all left. And we were left with about six or seven, depending on the day, because we actually lost guys during the year, six or seven scholarship players, a handful of walk-ons and a 32 year old head coach, Scott Drew. But we were supposed to play a full big 12 schedule against Kansas, Texas, Oklahoma, best of the best. And we weren't supposed to win a game all year long. And it was really difficult at the beginning, but there's a miracle that happened midway through. We started to believe in each other, believe in our coaches, and we were more competitive than, and we actually won some games than anybody thought we would be. And Coach Drew that year even made this statement that because of what this team has done, that we have laid the foundation, but basically we have shortened the timeline for how long it would take for the program to get back to being good. And at the time, I didn't really believe it. I didn't think what we did mattered. But after time went by and I started to see these Baylor teams get to be really good, they made the tournament, people started letting me know that what we did mattered. And so I put the book together and it's just been uh, unbelievable, the response and what people have said since then. And then all of a sudden, yeah, we won the national championship two weeks ago. And, and it was cool. I got to be down in Waco Tuesday night for the parade and strangers would come up and shake my hand and say, basically the word they used over and over was foundation and to be a part of something like that. And to, to be a part of something that coach Drew has built is really special. Yeah. I can't even imagine one, what your experience was like during that time and the tumultuous stuff that was going on, but two, then grind through it, build a foundation. And then 18 years later to see it, you know, I don't want to say pay off, but you know, the dividends and the foundation you built leading to what happened this year, which was really exciting and unbelievable to watch. So that's a really cool thing to share with us. And I appreciate you doing that. I want to go back to two things here. One, because you lived it as a player And Coach Drew coming in, having to take over a program that was a little bit in transition. Mm -hmm. And then you as an adult landing your first head job after being assistant for six years and having to not only be at a private school, which you had never been at, but also move over 18 inches in the seat. But what did you realize very quickly that you still needed to figure out as prepared as maybe you thought you were having watched it with coach drew and then being there and being put up for these other jobs that you passed on. But now here I am and I got to figure this out. And I think I know, but I really don't know. Yeah. So one thing that coach drew did really well with us is he sold us on his vision. And one of my favorite quotes, I think as coaches, we have to see the vision and sell the vision. And we're constantly helping players to see it and we're constantly selling it to them. And he did that really well for us, gave us a game plan that he thought would help us to be competitive, but also really for us, it was more of what you're doing for the future, what you're building for that. Um, Coming into faith, my last couple of years at McKinney High School, the head coach there and I had created what we like to call the system. And, And it's not the system that's out there, the Grinnell system that I actually love, it's just our own version of the system. And we would just call it that. And, but it was basically running and gunning, really utilizing the three-point line, playing smaller, playing fast, and then pressing. And we had a, a lot of fun and success with that my last few years at McKinney. So I came into faith believing that with very different clientele than what the school I was at before, that we could do that and we could make it happen. We could run the system here. So I think the the biggest challenge was they had averaged 50 points a game the year before, and they had walked the ball up the floor every possession. So the first day I brought them in, I sat them down and I had a whiteboard and I said, I want to write some goals down for you. And I wrote the first one is we're going to average 70 points or more a game. And their eyes just, you know, <laughs> opened up. I said, we're going to shoot between 30 and 43s a game. And they, even more, we're never going to walk the ball up the floor. And, and I said, and we will have one or two or more players score 40 or more points in a game this year. 
I think the the biggest thing I had to do that entire fall because I didn't really I knew I thought we had some good players, but I didn't know if they could run and gun and do what I was asking them to do. The biggest thing was just showing that faith in what I was saying. Guys, I truly believe this and not allowing any doubt to creep out or, or man. So before our very first game, I felt very sick and I was very nervous because I thought, okay. I have this plan for us to press for 32 minutes and never stop running. What if those seeds of doubt that all of us coaches have, what if it doesn't work? Am I going to get run out of here in one year? Will my coaching career be over? Like all of these, this, you know, this, this voice starts chirping in first quarter of the game. I think we were down 13 to 11. We could not buy a bucket. Like it was just, we were missing so much, but we ended up winning by 30. And I think it was like 85 to 55. We completely just opened it up and, and that team that year, just, they averaged 82 points a game, hit 371 threes. It was just lightning in a bottle that year. I think I learned more the next few years after that than that year, because everything just worked out how I had hoped or dreamed, but I thought I could replicate that every year, no matter what the talent level or who I had. That's the biggest lesson that I've learned is instead of just saying I can run this system with any type of team. I've had to adjust that to how can I still play the style that I think is right and, and I enjoy, but tweak it and make it work for this team that I have. And that took me about five years. And so a lot of frustration to figure out. It's interesting that you say that because I think at the college level, you can do that to a certain degree because you can recruit to your system at the high school level. Unless you live in particular areas where that is allowed, you yeah. get what you get. And so how do you tweak it, stay true to your principles and your philosophy, but set your kids up to be successful? And it's interesting that over that five-year period, right, as a grounding period, we're figuring that out, we're tweaking things, and then we're settling on what I would say is a core set of principles and values versus no every single time we have to do this versus yeah. no th this is the underlying concept and there's a lot of different things that can happen what would you say after eight years now is the best thing that you do as a program other than selling your vision every day that has the largest ripple effect on your culture and what you're trying to build what are the things that no matter what if you were to leave tomorrow and go take one of those six a five a jobs what would you bring with you as non-negotiables and building blocks? We build shooters. Like that's the best thing that we do. But our culture is special. And I think the way that our guys treat each other and, and, and some of those things, that'll come too. But as far as just our identity and what we do daily, we build shooters. And I've had a lot of coaches over the years say, I'd love to play fast if we just had better shooters. And I was one of those. At McKinney, we had an 8-21 and 21 year where we were scouting our butts off and we knew everything the other team was doing. And we were running what I thought was a really solid motion, 20 passes of possession and that crap. And sorry, yeah, my, my emotion came out there. My, my true feelings came out there. But we were saying if we had better shooters, we would win more. And then, and then like a light bulb moment, like why not? Instead of just putting it all on the players, it's your fault that you're not better shooters. Why not help them become that? And, and not, so that way we don't have to rely on just hopefully a good shooter moves in mm -hmm. or a kid on his own works his tail off and becomes one. How about we give them the tools, but also we were guilty of, hey guys, great job today. Make sure you shoot at home when you get there. Make sure you get a hundred extra shots in or make sure you stay after practice not every guy wants to do that or will do that. So I have to make sure that in my practice time, I'm helping them to become better shooters. Awesome. Are there a couple favorites that you can offer in regards to, hey, five minutes a day of this is going to pay compounding interest dividends that you don't even realize? Well, I would say 45 minutes a day. We'll do that. Five minutes a day of anything. I don't know. We do a few things. One is called our daily 10. Like during our season, it's a daily 10. And it's just something because... I think they need to start every practice off shooting. One, it's the most fun thing they can do. Mm -hmm. So let's make practice fun. The days of uh, Norman Dale at Hoosiers, my, my practice is not designed for your enjoyment. Those are over. And as much as I love that idea, you just don't do that anymore. 
because uh, they have choices. Literally, they could choose to do, they could just go play Fortnite. Mm-hmm. So I'm asking them to be in the gym and to work really hard. So we start off with shooting. Daily 10, you just make two one-handers. You make two form shots and you're moving back every step. Mm-hmm. You make two rockers, which is a specific shot movement that we do. It's a PGC shot. We do two free throws and two threes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that just sets our guys up for, and they have to make two at each spot. As far as shooting volume, I don't worry about volume as much as we do tons of shooting games mm-hmm. um, because I want every time they shoot for them to have that feeling that they'll have when they play pressure, time, mm-hmm. score. This shot matters because if they're just shooting, all right, guys, let's start off just to shoot 53s. That could be slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, their mind can be on other things. And then we record those, their scores for games that we play. Mm-hmm. And we say them out loud, their scores out loud to each other, not to embarrass anybody, but it's just role identification. Mm-hmm. If I make 60 and this guy makes 80 again and again, who should be getting the shots here? And so it just helps with that every day. But the biggest thing with, I don't mess with their form very much at all. Mm-hmm. I don't, I think it's 90 to 10. between their ears, 10% form, because there's tons of different types of form. Now, obviously, if there are tons of offhand interference, meaning they're thumbing the ball really bad, but you look at Larry Bird, you look at Dirk, you look at Nash, you look at Curry, Mm -hmm. all different types of shots. So to say that there's only one way that you can shoot, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So I don't focus on that. I focus more about what's between their shots, what type of their ears, what type of meaning do they assign to every shot that they take? Mm -hmm. Does a made shot mean that you're doing everything right? Does a missed shot mean that you're doing everything wrong? And if that's the meaning that they're assigning, then they're going to struggle. They're going to be a very frustrated shooter. But it's interesting that the things that you just offered, right? I'm not worrying so much about form as much as volume and quality and the mindset that you're in those situations. So we're calling out numbers. You had to track them and I can write them down and you can see the longitudinal growth, but also so that I know that guy's a better shooter and I better throw him the ball because that's the hardest thing. It's I should get just as many shots as Johnny. No, you shouldn't. He's a better shooter. And we all know that. If you don't throw it to him, your teammates are going to be telling you, why did you not throw it to Johnny? And I think it's really important in role definition that you found a way not to just state Hey, he's A, you're B, you're C, but to let them figure that out through your games. I would say the number one thing that coaches and teams struggle with is shot selection. And it's also the number one reason why teams lose games. It's not rebounding. It's not defense. It's not assists. It's not turnovers. It's shot selection. If a team is lost by eight or less a game, that's shot selection. Mm-hmm. One bad shot a quarter, that's eight points at least. And so it it is such a huge thing. And then the problem with shot selection too, is it's personal. So you can really hurt someone's feelings by telling them that's a bad shot. And another thing, and I watch a lot of select ball because my players play in it and, and I listen to other coaches rant and rave about it, but we got to get away from vague terminology. Hey guys, we're taking bad shots. Hey, let's only take good shots. That term, good shots, can mean five different things to those players. So Johnny's good shot, he's thinking, oh, that means step back three. This guy's good shot, okay, that means as soon as I cross half court, pull it, because that's a good, you know, like we have to be specific. So I think with shooting, building shooters, how you teach shot selection, it goes hand in hand with that. And I stole it from PGC. It's the rating system. There's no such thing as a 10. A nine is a wide open layup. We love nines. Eight is a contested layup. Eights are great because you're in the paint. You can get a foul and you can finish through contact. Sevens are a wide open jump shot within their range. The within their range part is shooting games and having games where they can't progress to another level back until they make a certain amount. Teach them, show them through shooting games what their range is. Don't just tell the guy, hey, Because you missed this last game, that's not your shot. No, like that's wrong. What do they prove to you over a long period of time in shooting games? Um, Six is a contested jump shot. And then a five is a 50-50 shot. And actually a contested eight, that is too difficult. They have to do too much to make it happen. And so what I tell my guys is if we're only shooting fives and sixes, we're going to lose that game. We'll lose. And it's, and I can 
tell them in a timeout, hey, right now, too many sixes. Let's get some sevens, eights, and nines. Mm -hmm. So instead of just saying we're taking bad shots, let's take good shots. Mm -hmm. It's specific. And then more importantly, too, the, the conversation with a player, Johnny comes over to me, and he is one of our best shooters and scorers, but he just shot a six. I'll say, hey, Johnny, rate that shot you just took. Mm-hmm. And he'll think about it, and he knows that was a six. I was like, here's the deal. I love when you shoot sevens. So let's be a little bit more patient. If it's a six, air him, peek at the rim, lift him, and then go create something else. So instead of it coming as a negative, mm-hmm. which 99% of the time, shot selection conversations are negative. Mm-hmm. I can come to it, emotion out of it. Hey, that's a six. And let sixes get us beat. Let's just be patient for sevens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's great. I use the same terminology and try to figure out ways to build it into the scrimmage situations. So it's we're scoring today based on the rating that, that each shot is. That bucket's worth nine. <laughs> that one's worth five. Trying to embed that stuff. And I think to your point, if you're losing by eight or less, it's a shot selection problem. Nothing else, no matter how you want to frame it. How do you make sure that you take better shots and another concept that we're both familiar with right how do you detach from outcome right how do you let these guys fire away without worrying whether it's going in or out because you've worked on it and you've built the stable of volume that eventually it's going to work out almost like Steph Curry-esque or I'm just going to keep firing no matter what the biggest thing is us as coaches we are the ones that cripple shooters It's not really them. I think most players will continue to shoot, but it's our reactions to misses. So if I have a green light shooter and our our program, green light, yellow light, red light, and it's a game that we play and, and we do it, golly, 30 times throughout the year. So we really know who's who. If he's a green light shooter and he misses a wide open, what we would call a seven from three, my only response is that's great. Next shot, next one. Like, it can never be frustration. Make a shot. Like, no crap. Are they trying to miss? Make your free throws. I've never known a kid going, hey, I'm going to miss this one. So it's we got to get away from saying those things, the obvious things, and think about what will actually help this kid. Hey, you're a great shooter. Uh, You just missed three in a row. What does that tell you? And I'll have a smile on my face, and they'll look back at me, they'll be like, I'm about to go off. That's why shoot to get hot, shoot to stay hot. Yep. That type of mentality is, it comes from us though. Yes, I don't like us to go eight trips in a row with eight missed threes in a row. I'm not attached to outcome. And one possession does not change or dictate the next possession. Now I'm talking outside of that magical two minute mark when it's winning time, like at the end of the games, but the, the 30 minutes before that, we can miss a three, go back in defense, come back, miss a three, go back on defense, come back, miss a three, and I will never tell them, let's not shoot threes. Because if the next three is open, that's still a seven. It's not changed just because the last three sevens were misses. Mm -hmm. I hate to hear, we're shooting too many threes, or, hey, why not try something different? No, if it's a seven, we're going to continue to shoot those sevens. Because, oh, it's math, man. It's percentages. It will come back to help us. What will cripple us is if I say, hey, you know what? No more threes, which you I've heard coaches say before. And it just blows my mind. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. I love the fact that it's a commitment to principle. This is who we are. This is what we do. This is what we've worked for. And we're going to ride it. And it's going to work out more often than it's not. So I think that's a hidden lesson that you're sharing with people if they're not reading between the lines on that. At a small school and at a big school, actually, where you were before, and even with the access that you have to your alma mater at Baylor, I'm curious, do you spend much time watching sports that aren't necessarily basketball or even if it is basketball? But what have you learned watching others coach that you've been able to directly implement in your program, be it from water polo or basketball or volleyball, but just things that cause you to think outside the box a little bit. I think the number one, and not really, I guess it's a person you could call uh, Dick DiVenzio from the PGC's founder, but PGC was, had the biggest influence on me as a coach. I pulled a few things from my high school coach and from coach Drew and my first coach, coach bliss, his organization. I pulled from that, but 
PGC. I wanted to be more like a Bobby Knight when I first started out, like that type of discipline and all those things. And PGC just taught me a, a way better way to communicate with players. So I would say that they were huge for me. Man, I just started researching fast basketball. Who plays fast? What do they think? And what do they do? And it led me to Loyola Marymount with Paul Westhead. I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot from the, probably I would consider one of the most genius coaches of all time is Arsenault at Grinnell. The guy that literally created a new style, a new brand of basketball. Now, I think it that style of basketball, five in, five out every 45 seconds and designated shooters and playing 15 to 20 guys and, and defensive possessions of 12 seconds or less, like that in my heart just makes sense. But this is to any other high school coaches that have thought of doing it be careful. I tried it for two years at Faith and I almost got fired. I almost got fired. I think you have to recruit guys to play that way. But man, his way of thinking about offensive possessions, really what it means to play fast and defensively too. And it allowed me as a coach, like if I'm going to, if we're going to play fast, we're probably going to give up buckets fast as well. And I have to be okay with that because in the name of tempo and playing a certain speed, that's what we need to do. But those two guys have been very influential on me. I, I don't really like to pl- watch college basketball too much. I love watching Baylor. They played fast offensively and shot the three, but college basketball is too controlled. The coaches are running too many sets and they're not teaching concepts and ways to play. So I don't like to watch a team walk the ball up the floor do some type of motion, not really looking to score. And then, oh crap, there's seven seconds left in the shot clock. I'd much rather watch NBA basketball where the dudes are free flowing, free thinking. They use some ball screen actions, but they play in space. That's who I I love to watch is is NBA basketball. Well, that's been a big shift, right? Where the high school model used to probably be the most controlling and then the colleges and then the NBA has always been a little bit more fluid. And now The high school game is opening up more because that's what's happening in the NBA. And that's what these kids are trying to emulate. And the college basketball world is still, no, this is all about outcome. We have to make sure we get this and we're on this stage. And it's a very interesting approach. But the informed research that you did to figure out, okay, this is what I believe in. Let me go figure out what the best practices are and then implement them and apply and keep some, throw some away. And that's the whole art of coaching, right? What works for him might not work for me, but let me try this. And if it does, great. If not, let me get rid of it. The In that vein, how has your approach changed over the years? And in regards to your own evolution, things that you were doing that you have gotten rid of and things that, you know, no, this is where I've evolved and I'm going to continue to work on this part of the game and my own coaching approach, because this is what the athletes today need. Yeah. So it goes back to sometimes the way that I think every coach has a style of play that just lines up directly with them. It makes sense. They can see it. They believe in it. They feel like this is the right way to play. And so when I came to faith and we did that and we had such success in it, as far as speed goes, playing fast, I think I've been to the edge. Luckily, I didn't fall over, but I've been there. There is a way that you could play so fast and and with a certain type of, of player it not be beneficial and in a danger. So second and third year at faith, we shot over 400 threes each year. Some games we shot more than 60 in a game. And this is a high school game without a shot clock. We were pressing just two guys on the ball, two interceptors, one safety everywhere. No stop. I became okay with, and in college, I was a defensive player, not an offensive player. And so it was a shift, but I became okay with, letting their team score quickly just so we can get the ball back. Mm-hmm. That's a dangerous place. When as a coach, you don't mind them scoring as long as you get the ball and you play. I, th- I saw what happened to my guys was I think they knew I cared more about our score, our offense, and how many threes. I cared about that more than were we winning or losing. And, and 
to their credit, it was probably true a little bit. Like I got too caught up in all of that and players stop caring. I've seen when they feel, feel like winning isn't the ultimate goal, but that, but, but it wasn't like I told them, Hey, I don't care about winning, but I just said, Hey, listen, there's only going to be one state champion, but there's only going to be one guy that wins that, but we can go for that. But we can also lead Texas in threes. We can lead the country in threes. We can lead Texas in scoring. Like, we can do that, too. I don't think players care about that as much as coaches do, or I did. And so moving through that from year to year, I tried the shift charts that Grinnell does. Mm -hmm. To me, it makes perfect sense. If I take away the fear in a player of getting pulled out of the game by telling them that in a minute and a half, you're coming out no matter what. So one, go balls to the wall, right? play fearless, run around as hard as you possibly can because you're going to come out. Then I'll get that. And then what's the second thing they fear on the bench? When will I go back in? When you come off, don't worry. You're going to go back in a minute and a half. Mm -hmm. Like now that year we averaged 94. It was incredible. We had seven or eight over a hundred point games but we were a 500 team and the subbing style, my stars, the best players did not appreciate it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 loved it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, do I want to coach a style where my best players are frustrated and my role players are the happy ones only. And so we, we got away from that. And we finally, I've gotten to the point now where we don't press full court. Offensively, we run and gun and we play with pace and space mm -hmm. and we shoot sevens as soon as they're available. And we still play fast that way. But defensively, I've actually found a zone in the half court that allows us to stop people, allows us to be different and pressure but we don't get beat that much in the half court. We're not giving up layups and, and we're winning games from it. So that to me is, I found kind of my sweet spot, I think. Yeah. So I sometimes ask a question about failures and it sounds like that led to where you are right now and figuring out, all right, you can push it too far one direction and you got to yeah. find your balance. And the fact that you've been able to do that is interesting in the way that you're a half court defensive team for the most part, where most people that want to run up and down, want to press the match, the defense with the offense. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So the open-mindedness to shift, I think oh. is the important takeaway. As we think about 2020 slash 21, all the things that have come with this year, <clears throat> I wonder, and I've been asking this lately, just in random conversations, but what have you most recently changed your mind on? I used to think this, now I think this, and it doesn't even have to be basketball related. Just in general, as we go through life and we want to question our thinking and continue to push our growth, are there things that jump out at you in regards to how you've been able to take in new stimuli and then apply them in life as you go around, as you coach, as you teach, as you family, whatever it might be? I think the biggest thing I've learned this last year is to give up control. That's a part of my story and in my personal life. Um, I had to come to that realization when I was about 30 years old mm -hmm. and without realizing it, I had fallen back into that habit of wanting to be able to control everything that happens in my life. And I was starting to have this anxiety of things that I couldn't. So what I learned was when things shut down last March, I was terrified that our growth and development of our team, the, the individual players, because we do a lot of individual skill work. That's all the spring and summer is, no team stuff at all. Mm -hmm. And they would be missing out and we wouldn't be as successful. So I, I didn't have contact with the guys, but I would send them workouts and I was tracking what they were doing. And I was getting super frustrated that guys weren't doing them. I'm like, listen, like you're at home, you've got nothing else to do right now. Why is basketball not more important to you? My wife always would tell me over the years when I would get frustrated with players and their decisions, she's like, you know, you want them to be like you. And that's maybe an unfair, I don't know, place to put these guys or a standard to hold them to because 
I was pretty insane about the game and I worked a lot harder than other guys did. So I think giving up control is one and letting them choose. Like I got these, these players just have to make the choice themselves. I'm, I'm, I'm focused more on giving them opportunities, but no longer am I trying to be the judgmental, you know, the way that coaches can using coach speak like, well, I guess you just don't want it very, you know, like passive aggressive. And, and I had three players that would have been starters for me this year, leave or, or decide not to play basketball. They decided to do other things. And I did not handle that very well. My summer job here at Faith was to mow the lawn every morning. I'll mow the lawn. So on my riding lawnmower, I would look out and I saw the guys doing our summer athletic course that they have. And some of those players were out there. And I had to literally, on my lawnmower, look at them every day. And I kind of think of it more as like lessons from the lawnmower. <laughs> like when you're just it's stuck thinking about how could they do this? How could they make this choice? Like I kept going back to, okay, first of all, I got to give up control of this or I'm going to go insane and nothing I can say or do is going to change their mind. So what I'm going to do is just trust that the right guys are going to be in the gym for me in the fall. And six weeks into the school year, two guys transferred here from another school that I had never seen them before. I did not know their name. I called their coach the day that I saw that they were interested in coming. I said, Hey, I just want you to know, because we're a private school, they could, these two guys are coming. I don't know them. And I just want you to know that because I want to keep my rapport with coaches. But they came in and they didn't look like much, like just talking to them and stuff. They weren't big or anything, but them and then these other young players that grew up banded together. And we ended up having one of the most satisfying seasons of my career. But I was six months before that thinking, why am I doing this? These kids don't even want it. So I've been able to, and even with how I train them right now, it's our spring. They had a long season with me and I consider myself more of their skills coach right now, but I just allow them to choose how they want to show up every day instead of, Hey, you're not going hard enough. Go hard. It's your choice right now. And I, I tell them that I don't think you're making the right choice, but I'm going to keep working with you. Mm -hmm. I think that's been a huge shift for me. I love that because it speaks to realizing that there are things we can control and those that we can't. And the sooner that we can shift to being okay, not with the choices that are being made, but that it's out of our control and it's wasted energy to try to chase that down. Yeah. Doors open and it's unbelievable. And I got guys for years that will still say things to me that I used to say in regards to control the controllables, man. Don't spend a second of your life worrying about those things that you can't, and you'll be a whole lot happier. And so yeah. the funny thing is it goes right along with the style of play that has chosen you or you have chosen yeah. is you're giving up control once you put it right. And so it's, right. it's interesting that sometimes we don't make that connection. And the lawnmower story is great because I spent the spring and summer out on the field like Forrest Gump, listening to podcasts, trying to grow and just losing yep. myself in that. So I think it's a great place if anyone wants to have some thoughts for yourselves, go mow a uh, huge lawn all That's the right. time. <laughs> uh, if you were starting over today, last question, and you could jump in a time machine and go back and advise your younger self, I don't think very many of us would do things differently, but what advice would you have to help get you to where you are now philosophically to help you touch more lives earlier on? Yeah, I think the number one thing I tell myself is to spend less time, spend less time in practice, spend less time walking through things, spend less time watching film, spend less time scouting, spend less time worrying about wins and losses and others' opinions um, and things like that. Oh, sp spend less time worrying about legacy and the total number of whatever, all that stuff that can run through your mind. I would have a little cheat sheet with me and I'd hand it to me and I'd say, hey, use this zone now because I love it. And that's just been great. Offensively, I wouldn't change a thing, but I think we used to practice too long. We used to watch too much film. I used to scout too much. Scouting's overrated. It's overrated, especially now. The only time you need to scout is if you're trying to do a bunch of things. Mm -hmm. Like if you're trying to do, if you have five defenses and 20 plays and three continuities that you flow in and out of, 
then I guess you better scout and know everything they're doing. But if you do one thing defensively and you do one thing offensively, then just worry about your guys and become really good at what you do. It's funny because we've always been in alignment from a philosophical standpoint, but you talk to our buddies and my buddy's probably the best coach in the area and he's scouting every game. He has access to our huddle. I'm like, coach, you don't need to come. Just go in the film and watch. He's like, I like to see people live. And I'm like you, it's, you know, we practice 90 minutes tops period, yep. non-negotiable. We're not going over that. And often it's 60 minutes. And to your point, if you know what you do and you focus on that, 80% of the time, you're going to end up in a pretty good spot. And what you get back in regards to spend less time, you're not saying don't coach us hard. You're just saying oh, you have no. so like, much we, time to you know, allocate. We bust it. Yeah, we bust it during that time. But I have happier players. I have players that aren't burnt out halfway through the year. Yeah. And I play more games with them. But it's all about – but it, it does help to me to, if I was a man-to-man team and I was terrified of the sets another team ran – that would probably force me to scout more. If we ran a bunch of sets, I would want to know how they could guard us. But yeah, I think our style of play allows me to not care about those things as much. Yeah. Let me throw one more at you because I've never asked this, but because of the way you do things, I'd be curious what your thoughts are. What would an effective practice look like for you since you don't go as long as you used to? You figured out how to hack the system to a certain degree and maximize your time on task to end up with pretty much the same result or better than you were getting before. So just what would it, what would the practice look? Yeah. Just blocking and how you use that time in broad strokes. Yeah. So first off we would start with shooting a hundred threes and it's team practice because we do skill work during the period, during the day. Then after school we do, we have team practice, but you start off with your bread and butter and what will make it the most fun for them. And so I look at it that way that's a hundred and we practice, let's just say because of games, we practice four, four days a week. So that's 400 threes on top of all the shooting we do in the period. Like my guys are getting thousands of shots up throughout the season. So I want to be able to see them do this with their skill, not plateau. Or in many cases, I think players get worse during the season because it becomes all about team Mm -hmm. and all about one or two guys on that team. So every individual gets better. So we start off that way. We work on our flow. Our flow is our offensive principles and identity. Mm -hmm. Flow begins. So I don't believe in secondary breaks. Flow begins. Our offense begins as soon as we touch the ball. And so we work from different situations, sometimes live ball. I'll just toss it and we go play and get in flow. Three possession games are really important to me. I want to be really good in small chunks of time. And then reset our minds. Okay, that's done. Three possessions again. So we can start from a free throw. That's one, two, three. We're back. Baseline out of bounds. So instead of going five on O with our baseline out of bounds every day over and over, mm-hmm. only have two or three plays. Because why do you need 10? Mm-hmm. Two or three plays. They still got to guard them. And then we just play and finish with playing. And then transition defense, especially into our zone, is something that, we would work on. So uh, my high school coach called it hump it, but just get to get over the hump. But it's that classic. You got five guys at the free throw line extended five on the baseline. But what I started to do was I would move two guys out wide and three on the wall and then play around with how many guys are actually involved in the defensive team. Take three of them here, put two of them there or take two of them there, put three of them on the wall. So it's a five on two. It's a five on three. Mm -hmm. I think small sided games, the more you can play those are the way to go. So within all of that, you can get a ton done in 45 minutes to an hour. And then still, and then you have what we would call Jamodi time, Mm -hmm. just a matter of doing it time that I'm going to stay for 30 minutes. Practice is over. But if you want to shoot free throws, you can. If you want to get on the gun, you can. Mm-hmm. Kind of giving them. And I, w- I was amazed at how they wouldn't leave. I thought, okay, if practice is over, but I'm going to be here for 30 minutes, they're all going to take off. No, they're like, you know what? Yeah, I'll stay and I'll shoot more. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's been helpful. Instead of the three-hour practices we used to have, where I would basically, oh, you would love it. So many, like the purists out there, they would think this three-hour practice plan with defensive slides, charge drill, all close out like this is basketball. I'm so glad that I torched those practice plans. (laughs) 
No, for sure. And I think that's the growth you spoke about, right? How do you take all the things you want to do and boil it down to what Tim Ferriss would call the minimum effective dose? I love Tim Ferriss. Yeah. This is what you need to do to be good. And even we'll finish on this because I'm a huge charge guy, as I would imagine you are. It's like you could spend hours doing charge drill. Or you could privilege it in some other way where oh, if you take a charge, the drills over, that team wins or whatever it happens to be. And all of a sudden they're doing it. In our program, we've got the, the wrestling championship belt nice. where you take charges nice. and the guy, whoever takes the most gets to wear that thing around. And so how do you get the results you want with goes to what you said, spend less time. So I love that. That's what I want to leave the listeners with. And if there's anything else you want to steer people to your book, where can they find it so they can read the story and they can actually learn what Jamoti is. Yeah, um, it's The Leftovers and has a kind of a long name after it. Basketball, Betrayal, Baylor, and Beyond. The reason I had to add those words was The Leftovers. uh, It could be a cooking book or about the end times. So I thought I'd specify a little bit more, but just go on Amazon. If you put in The Leftovers Basketball, you can find it. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty proud of the story and, and a lot of people that get it they pick it up and they say they they couldn't put it down which i think that's a nice thing to hear if they're lying to me i don't care it still feels good i can say that it's a great read i got it after we met the first time and it finished it within a day of it arriving so anybody that's out there that wants a good basketball story pick it up coach thanks for being here today looking forward to our continued conversations and relationships i loved it thanks this podcast was also brought to you by teachhoops.com as coaches, our inboxes will get flooded with noise on how to make your program better. TeachHoops.com will get you focused on what needs to get done. One thing you've heard from these podcasts is no matter the experience, you got to keep pushing yourself to be better. Coach Steve Collins will help you direct that noise. He is there to help you. He has the credentials as a coach, and he's never turned down an Teach Hoops member. Sign up for a plan at TeachHoops.com and mention us at checkout. This site is here simply to help you be better. Take advantage and see you on the court. Remember, go to teachhoops.com. This episode is brought to you by Element, spelled L-M-N-T. What is Element? It is a delicious, sugar-free, electrolyte drink mix. I've been using Element Recharge for the last few months after hearing about it on another podcast, and since then, I've stocked up on boxes and boxes. I usually use it one to two times per day. Element is a great alternative to other commercial recovery and performance drinks and has enough sodium, potassium, and magnesium to get you feeling and performing your very best. Plus, it has zero sugar, artificial ingredients, or other junk you simply do not want. Speaking of performance, the best performers in the world use Element. I'm talking about Team USA Weightlifting, NBA teams, NFL teams, and Navy SEALs. The list goes on. Element can expand your limits too. Want more energy while low-carb dieting or intermittent fasting? Want to crush that next workout? Or want to just be ready for the next workday? Element has the electrolytes to make this happen. And with eight delicious flavors, you're guaranteed to find one that will satisfy your taste buds. They just released their latest flavor, Grapefruit, and it has quickly become one of my favorites. Element came up with a fantastic offer for us. Just go to drinkelement.com slash Justin to claim your eight count free sample pack.